are body cams helping? Very much so. Video is not a silver bullet to accountability. The biggest enemy of good cops are bad cops. They can hijack the profession and define us all. But you want to make a difference? I put an application in. I left college and did something about it. Do you have a strategy, a philosophy for school shootings? How do we combat this? It's more than one solution. At 9.58 p.m. on July 7th, 2016, shots rang out in Dallas, Texas. Micah Xavier Johnson, an Afghan vet angry about policemen shooting black men, said he wanted to kill white people, especially white policemen, had opened fire. When he was through, five policemen were dead, nine were injured, along with two civilians. It was the deadliest act against law enforcement since 9-11. This tragic event put Dallas, Texas, and in fact, America on edge. Think about it. Ferguson had happened. And just in the days preceding, there had been events in Louisiana and Minnesota. And one man stepped up. One police chief stepped up to the mic and became America's police chief. He calmed the waters. He calmed what could have turned into one of the biggest protest, one of the biggest demonstrations of violence in America. And with a clarion voice, he said, let's not act in violence. Let's take action in a constructive way. One of the things he said is, we're taking applications at the Dallas Police Department. That man was Chief David Brown, and we're going to talk to him today. I've been so interested to do this conversation because it's such a relevant and fragilely balanced time in America with law enforcement and the relationship that law enforcement has right now with the public, I mean, with the population. Yes. You know, on our show, as I think you know, we have this series we do called Behind the Badge. In Mm -hmm. the series Behind the Badge, we've gone New York to L.A. and places in between where we identify different departments and officers within a department and try and humanize the men and women that are behind the badge. We we try to show who they are, introduce their families, show some of the really good things that they do. And I started doing that right when Ferguson happened because I thought, you know, why don't they ever show the good human side of these men and women. And I thought, I'm they. Why am I saying, why don't they do it? I got the number one platform. (laughs) Why am I not doing it? So I started this program, and it has been one of the most successful programs that we've had across time. Wow. So people do want to know the information, but it doesn't seem to have gotten much better. I mean, we got damaged with some of these stories, And it doesn't seem to have gotten much better. Has it or has it not gotten much better? Is there still tension? There's quite a bit of tension. No, it hadn't gotten better. It seems like when you get glimpses of it, well, you think we're making progress, then you take two steps back. 
every step forward, two steps back. It seems to be more entrenched and mirroring our politics and our, you know, worldviews being so, so much in contrast and police being on the front lines and wearing a uniform, easy to identify. And we're the only part of government that still makes uh, house calls, if you think about it that way. So yeah. we're, we're the face of government uh, at the, uh, you know, press of a button on your, on your smartphone. So it's, we can't avoid it as police officers. We can't like pass your house when you need us. And we're extremely human, like everyone else, and flawed. So we make mistakes. And I like what you're talking about as far as it's such a complex issue. Uh, but wh- where are the balanced stories that tell the great courage, sacrifice, bravery that happens? And then tell the, tell the bad stuff and let people figure it out. Rather than inundate people with just the one-sided mistake that's awful and tragic and everyone regrets without telling the brave story about someone who just risked their life and gave, sacrificed everything for, for all of us to be safe. Are we asking too much of police officers? All the time. It is one of the biggest tragedies in, in government is that we don't give enough funding for some of our social failures as it relates to funding for, say, something like mental health or uh, where we have flaws in our culture where, you know, single moms are trying to do everything and, and many times the kids are, uh, don't have a strong father figure. And, you know, you have to create police athletic leagues so that cops can throw a ball with a when a young person doesn't have a father, create a strong relationship. Cops can't do all of those things and still, you know, put the bad guys in jail. Is it consistent to ask officers to do policing and race relations at the same time? Can you do both at the same time? Because if you're there to enforce the law and you're supposed to be managing race relations at the same time, sometimes aren't those things at odds and mutually exclusive? Shouldn't social workers and sociologists and psychologists and politicians be doing one and police doing the other? Yes. Are we asking too much of it? Yes, them? and even more importantly, just one generation back, uh, police was asked to enforce unjust laws in Jim Crow. And so politicians and people of influence who had the authority to direct police resources, directed police to enforce segregation laws. And one generation removed, just 50 years ago, that was happening. And you fast forward to today, we're left with holding the bag. Everyone doesn't want to talk about race, and the police are left holding the bag and trying to figure out the complexities of racial you know, dissension and, and divisiveness. Yeah, and when you're talking about one generation ago, when the police were charged with enforcing these unjust laws, that generation has raised up the current generation with the message of these guys come in and crack heads. These guys come in and pull you off the restaurant stool. These guys come in and tell you you can't have equal rights. So they're your enemy. So the current generation has a justified chip on their shoulder, then we send those officers in there and expect them to say, okay, we're going to smooth everything out and calm everything down. It just seems to me 
that we're asking too much of the men and women in uniform to do that when somebody else ought to be doing that, and you can't do that if you don't fund it. And when you have that history, the current generation looks for the flaws that maybe their grandmother or grandfather talked to them about in the 50s and 60s. So every mistake is, is larger than life. And we know how we can communicate much easier over social media. Everything is viral. So not only can, can, is it larger than life when you, when you make mistakes, it's easier communicated when you make mistakes. So the, the negative becomes the whole. Yeah. And there, there's no time or room or space for positive interactions or positive discussions about what the good things and the good sacrifices that police are making. Yeah. Plus, there's no local news anymore. No, sir. Something no, can sir. happen in Balt Springs. Something can happen in Dallas, South Oak Cliff, Bakersfield, wherever. That used to be local. It would be contained locally. The impact would be local. But now something happens in Balt Springs, which is a suburb of Dallas or an outlying area right. of Dallas, and they're reading about it in L.A. They're reading right. about it in New York, right? and they may be protesting it in New York. Yes. There's no local news. Everything is national now. Just think about what started this, Dr. Phil. Uh, Ferguson, Missouri really was the match that lit this whole movement, this idea of police are, are negative, racist, bad. Ferguson, Missouri Police Department is 50 officers, 50 officers. They defined a profession. There's 18,000 police departments, over 900,000 cops in this country, but a 50-officer police department defined policing. And we're still digging ourselves from uh, what happened in Ferguson, out, out of what happened in Ferguson, Missouri. 50 officers. And with a department that size, I mean, let's face it. It's based on their budgets. It's based on their tax base. It's based on their budget. Their training just simply may not be what you would have in L.A., Dallas, Philadelphia, Chicago, somewhere else. And I've dealt with some of the small police departments in stories that we've done on the show where they catch a murder case. They've never done a murder case. Right, right. And so they have no idea if there's been an abduction and a murder They've never worked a murder case. They don't know how to preserve the crime scene. And it's not that they're incompetent. They just have never had the training on how to do those things. I agree completely with that. But in addition to this, it's exactly what you mentioned before about race. Politicians in Ferguson, Missouri, set up that, that conflict. They were, they were ticketing the poor people in that city uh, to raise funds for their projects and budgets. It was, a, it was a speed trap. You, you, you wrote poor people tickets. You knew they couldn't pay it. It go, it go into warrants. They double fine you, triple fine you. This, this is, and then the conflict is created. And then you send police in to try to uh, make everything safe. And what happens? You know, this shooting happens. This outrage, you, as you're watching it, how did that turn into this weeks-long protest, burning the... The, the neighborhoods you live in down and, 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 and this, this conflict going across the country. It, I, I think that, again, there, there's a lot of people in our government that need to take a little bit more responsibility in resolving issues. And at some point, as, as a country, we are going to have to deal with this racial discussion 
and not put it on the backs of police officers to, to, to solve. But what do you say to the populace when what you said is the policy where they say, all right, we're ticketing poor people knowing they can't pay. Right. And then when they default, the fine doubles. And so there's a warrant. Right. And now you're triple. So you may have a $45 fine that becomes a $90 fine that now becomes 145 or 150 or it may jump up to $200, whatever it is, with the warrant and the court cost. So now somebody's going in to get them. Right. And the officer is the face of government. You think the officer made that policy. No, the officer is just enforcing the law. Somebody just hands the officer the warrant. Yes, that's right. And they have to execute the warrant just like the officer before had to execute the Jim Crow law. Yes, yes, sir. There's some parallels here in all of this. It kind of is a Jim Crow law. Yes. On poor people. Much right. more. It's much more class than it is race. You know, the poor don't have advocates. Yeah. They can't afford a lawyer. They can't afford to defend themselves in, in, in our bureaucracies. They don't know the system. And so they're easily manipulated in some of our systems, particularly the smaller government. But I wouldn't excuse larger governments. Uh, the, the current bail system has been shown to be something that, again, preys on the poor because you can't afford uh, some of the things that are required in the court system. So, again, because officers are the face of government, we, we bear the burden of some of the deficiencies in our government. I've talked to some of these poor folks that are really struggling to get by. Yep. They've been caught up in this mill where they get ticketed or fined for the most ridiculous non-infraction, but I mean, it is some technical violation. At that point, there's no way out. Right. There's no way out. They're going to get tripled and doubled, taken to jail. Once they get in, there's no way out. It's like you owe your soul to the company store. Yes. There's no way out. It's like indentured servitude. Right. How is that happening in America? What do we do about that? Well, again, you know, this, this is such a complex issue. But I, I think if you look at the root causes of some of our problems, I think you start with poverty. You, you start with access to a quality education. Uh, and then you start with uh, access to adequate health care. You wrap those three together. Now you're dealing with our problem. And then you look at the funding for that. It, it, it is particularly... Um, in, in some parts of the country where very little funding for mental health, very little funding for uh, some of our schools, uh, almost second rate education. If you can afford a private school, you know, you, you're not going to send your kid to the public school. Right. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and so that just tells the story of really the lives, life of a person who's poor uh, growing up in this country. I grew up poor. I can talk about this because I grew up poor. Um, your mother tells you you have to work twice as hard to be they have the same op opportunities, and that, that's instilled in me. You know, I just show up early, work twice as hard, you know, always do your best. Don't make excuses. So, again, th those are some things that are so complex and wrapped in our society that are on the backs of police officers going into these environments. And to, you come into the home of someone who's poor to enforce the law. You can't even get to enforcing the law without interacting with all these other problems that these people have. But you have to enforce the law. And the, you, you're left with a no-win situation. And, and I, I think the, 
the average rookie cop, I mean, their lives just change overnight. They they come in with this worldview, I'm going to save the world, and 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 man, the world just rolls them over. And you struggle as as leaders in the profession to prevent them from being so callous and hard to maintain their sensibility and, and their positive worldview. But it's difficult when you're answering 911 call after another, seeing these hopeless situations, these people in poverty, and you're there to enforce the law which oftentimes makes it worse, particularly low-level crimes. When you're right. enforcing the low-level crimes like you know, marijuana and you know, just kind of low-level warrants for tickets, people go to jail for that, and they can't pay the rent when they're in jail. Right. I'm really wondering if a lot of officers today will watch something happen, even a violent crime or maybe a burglary or something, and it might involve a minority, and they just say, I'm just going to drive on by because this is trouble I don't want. Right. So as a result, the very neighborhoods that they're supposed to protect, which may be African-American neighborhoods, it may be where they live, it may be the very people that they grew up doing business with, going to school with, but they're just simply saying, this is trouble I don't want because I don't want to be a headline. I don't want to be accused of being a racist. I don't want to be accused of being unjust. Why take the risk? Is that happening? Man, I could tell you, 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 you you're talking about something that continues to amaze me. I've, I've, I've seen cops come to work days after events happen where another cop in another part of the country is, has gone viral because they've done something wrong and protest. And, and I, I come to work thinking, man, I'm going to lose some cops. There's some, it's it's going to be half room full of people coming to work. <laughs> and the room is full of people. They're ready to go to work. And they get a call where they know they're going to risk their life answering that call. And they go. I, I, it's hard to explain that dynamic. I need a psychologist or a psychiatrist to explain this dynamic. And, and, and the same cops will run toward bullets for a person of a different race that may have just protested them or said something ugly about the profession. And the cops do that with, without a second thought. They, they, it's some amazing people in law enforcement today. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the young person coming to put in an application today are, are some of the most amazing young people. It's the hope for America that people still want to do this job and still want to risk their lives for people maybe that are not as appreciative as they should be. It's amazing. I, I can't explain it. Well, they're sure not doing it for the money. No, sir. Because you're not going <laughs> to get rich. Yes, sir. A average cop salary is $60,000 a year uh, to risk your life. What percentage of them have to take second jobs? They all do. I worked second jobs for 20 years yeah. uh, to, to give my, my family a decent living. Most work overtime, to, right? second jobs. They, they work too many hours. That, that is absolutely true. They go work security or work at the mall or go work nights. 
guarding something or, or right. some other unrelated job, but yeah, they have funny to work story, a job. We talked about your uh, having uh, Steve Harvey as a friend. He had a club here in Dallas when he first started right. in comedy. I was in the parking lot working security at his club. Is that right? When I was a rookie cop. Yeah. And uh, afterwards, I would go in and, man, that's, I said, man, you're going to be famous one day <laughs> when I was a rookie cop back in the 80s. Wow. Yeah. But I, I, you have to work second jobs to make ends meet yeah. to, to give your, your family a chance at life. But you had passed law enforcement by. You had gone to college. I had. You were in, what, your second, third year? I was in my third year. And doing well, moving on. I really was. I was at uh, University of Texas at Austin. I had gotten an academic scholarship, grants, and financial aid to go. Uh, one of the best schools in Texas. First in my family to go to college. I was going to help get the family out of poverty, and, and I'm a junior. I'm doing well. I'm loving it, but... This, when I, you know, spring break, you go back home. I go back to my poor neighborhood and I noticed that uh, all the kids were acting different, hooked on crack. It's the beginnings of the crack cocaine epidemic. All my friends that didn't go to school uh, like I had and they, they experimented with crack cocaine. So crack back was in taken over then. 83, so this was 82 and 83? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. All right. So your friends, you were seeing them on the street corners. Yep. So you're doing well. You got a ride. You're paid through your degree. Yes, sir. And your family expects you to do that. And you did what? What did you say? Come home and tell my mom and dad I, I want to be a police officer to help clean up the neighborhood from the crime and drugs that had just, in my opinion, had just started. But the neighborhood wasn't like that earlier. Uh, crack cocaine had a different effect on the neighborhood than any other drug that not like marijuana, not like other drugs. Crack really made it much more violent. And my mom and dad were- Did they ask you if you were on crack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) they they were so disappointed, especially my father was so disappointed. Uh, Thought it was the wrong thing. Had had that 1950s worldview of policing. Right. uh, Mistreating them. My mom was born in 1940, my dad was born in 1939. So as teenagers, it was separate but equal and the police enforced that. Back of the bus- you know, not at the lunch counter, all that. So they, they had the most negative view of police and asked me why you want to be a part of that. And, you know, I'm, I'm 20 years old when I'm t- talking to them. About it. So I, I want to say to the world, I, you know, I tell them uh, I can change all that, that I would change all that. But me, I thought that just little old me could have an impact on, on all that, but especially on the drug epidemic, especially. So you stuck with it and you stopped college right then. I did. You stayed right then and went to the police academy. I went down to police headquarters, filled in an application <laughs> in, in my uh, uh, blue jeans, secondhand blue jeans and second, thirdhand shirt uh, and afro. And the secretary looked at me, Dr. Phil, this is no joke. I'm filling out the application. I handed it to her. She looks at me and said, we're not going to hire you. She tells me, You're not, we're not going to hire you. And I, I said, well, ma'am, take my application anyway. I'm, I'm going to sit right here. And I'm, I want to go through the process. Um, and they hired me. And uh, fast forward 25 years, that, that same secretary retires. And I'm the police chief. And I, and the I same hand, secretary? And I hand her her retirement plaque. So Did she remember that? No, but I did. <laughs> did you remind <laughs> I did. her? It motivated me. It motivated yeah. me. I'm going to show you. You know, it, I, I came from one of those families and neighborhoods where you're not going to tell me that you're better than me because I'm going to show you that you're not. I actually stood there standing with her plaque, smiling, saying, thank you for motivating me. Otherwise, 
you know, I would have walked away. Did you remind her that No, she... I didn't. I, I was I actually, it was a good day that day. I, it was kind of my own little secret. And I, yeah. it was a, one of those days I, through all the stuff you got to go through as chief, that was a pretty good day. She reminded you to hang in. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I cleared my calendar for that retirement. Yeah, I'll bet you did. <laughs> now, you married a police officer. I did, an undercover narcotics detective. Undercover. We've been married for 22 years now. Was she superior to you at the time? No, she was not. So we had to keep it on, on the down low a little bit. We couldn't let people know. I was in SWAT as a sergeant, and right. she was an undercover narcotics detective. Uh, she's originally from New York, so she's a fast talker. She can, she can, she can uh, as an undercover, she could buy dope from anybody. She could convince people that she was uh, yeah. a user, easy, very attractive woman. Uh, she would actually get the warrants, the narcotics warrants, for my SWAT unit to execute, to, to serve those warrants mm -hmm. on these very, very dangerous folks. It was love at first sight. It really was. How long had you been on the force? I had been on the force about 12 years, and she was my second marriage. You were in SWAT, and you've been in virtually every, every job in the police department, Every assignment. Right? I've had quite a journey in policing. I've been in every assignment, internal affairs, crime scene, CSI. I, I've been a detective. I've, uh, I, I enjoyed the SWAT years probably the most. But when you got to be chief, the thing that I have noticed in studying you, you would move from one job to another job, but you just took the prior job with you to the next job. Because yes, when you got to be chief, you continued to do all the jobs you had done before. Yes, sir. You would go ride traffic. You would show up at crime scenes. You did everything you had ever done along the way, yeah, right? I, I just couldn't. I, I wasn't a pencil pusher type person. I, I wasn't a paper pusher. I, I, I wasn't an administrative guy. That, that, was, that was not why I wanted to come into the profession. I, what I brought with me is my neighborhood. I, I brought with me the, kind of the inner city folks that looked up to me and expected me to make a difference as a cop. They expected something different from me, and I took it to heart. And so I couldn't let go of my experiences. And I, my experiences were much more at the street level, doing the job, um, you know, answering the calls, dealing with criminals, dealing with especially the drug epidemic, particularly when it becomes violent, the robberies, you know, the, the, the mothers and grandmothers getting robbed. That, that was my thing. I, I, I just, I was, it made me restless that we would, would do everything possible to make sure that, that particularly the neighborhoods that needed it the most had the best protection. When you went through the academy, were you treated differently? I have a different take on this idea of racism, how, how people treat you. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. So I'm a little bit, some people will call me arrogant in a way if you, if you didn't know me. That I'm, I'm very comfortable in my own skin. I don't care what people think. 
So I, I have never let someone treat me different, ever. So if someone says the N-word, that's not going to be a problem for me because I got a whole lot of other words for you and you will regret you ever said the N-word to me. Yeah. And that don't mean we can't be friends. I'm going to respect you as long as you respect me. I can never play the victim. It's just not a part of my personality. I'm always firm, but I'm, I'm looking for a friend. I'm looking for an advocate. Because the way I saw the job was you just can't do it alone. It's easier to make friends than it would be to make enemies. And the more friends you have, the easier the job is. And even if you say or do something that may come across as racist, I'm going to call you out on it. And, and we're going to move on. We, I'm, I'm not going to let that be the end of a friendship or a potential friendship just because you weren't raised right and how to treat me. So you're going to bite him back, but then you're going to be friends after that. Or you're going to at least way. give him a chance. Yep. I've, I've had people I've promoted who used the N-word around me uh, when I was younger. I, I promoted them to one guy, the lieutenant. I, I, I remember when he did it. I was in a group. I was only black. It was a bunch of white guys. And we were talking about what we were going to do. And he just burned out. We're going to go down there and arrest all of them. I said, hold up. And we had it out right there. <laughs> Wait a minute. We had it out right there. I said, that's where I'm from. I was born and raised there. And we're not the N-word. Now, let's go to work. You know, that's because, you know, again, because he wasn't raised on how to treat me, I can't cast him and throw him in the trash. And he's not going anywhere. I'd rather persuade him to respect me. And maybe the next black person he runs into, he'll know not to call them the N-word. That I'll remind him, hey. This is how you treat people, and we don't deserve to be treated like that. Did he respond? Yes, and we became friends later. Yeah. Again, I, I promoted him. Yeah. And he wasn't, a, in my opinion, you know, he hadn't been raised right, and uh, so I, I, helped, I helped him out a little bit. Yeah. What was your first year like as your rookie cop? What was your first year like? Man, it was fun. They accidentally put me in my old neighborhood. You're not supposed to be assigned to where you live if you grew up in the city. You're supposed to be assigned to a different part of time because of, you know, conflicts of interest potentially. But but for whatever reason, they didn't read my address, right, on my application, <laughs> and I was in my old neighborhood. I knew everyone. Really? I knew the good folks. I never bought a meal. I had dinner every every night I had dinner with some at somebody's house. I felt at home. I felt it was a sense of accomplishment. It's, it's what I came into the profession to do, and I was able to put uh, a lot of folks in jail and need to go. Yeah. Uh, and I was able to change the way people looked at police in a very small way. So you knew from the inside out who the bad guys were. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, there are some people I put in jail. Their mothers say, thank you so much. They sick, you know, this son hooked on drugs, you know, stealing from his own mom, and she couldn't handle him physically. Try to kick him out of the house. He come back. They need your help. And jail, for some people, is like the rock bottom last resort thing that happens to you. It is not a life sentence for the most part, but, you know, some of these mothers can't do anything else with some of these kids. And, and, and they need police to put some handcuffs on them and, and, yeah. and take them away. You told me a story I'll never forget. You said you answered a burglary call your first year and... <laughs> A friend came out the front door carrying some stuff, right? <laughs> yes, sir. And I called his name. I, I, went, I hadn't even gotten out of the car yet. I, I, I forget his name, but I called his name and said, hey. He looked at me. He said, Brown. We had run track together. And he was hooked on drugs, but he recognized me. He was stealing for the fact. And I said, hey, man, put that down. He gets down into a track running <laughs> stand. 
Dr. Phil. He said, let me see if you still got it, Brian. He takes off in a full sprint. And I'm looking like, can you believe this? You know, a lot of cursing. But <laughs> I take off running. We run for like, like a football field, 300 yards or so. And I catch him, handcuff him. He's laughing the whole time. I said, man, are you crazy? He said, man, you still got it, don't you? <laughs> I said, I'm done. Oh, oh man. <laughs> I said, you can't nobody believe this story. But yeah, that that was one of my first so you put arrests. him in jail. Put him in jail for burglary. Yeah. Yep. But he was laughing the whole time. He was had been a good kid, uh, made some bad choices. That's one of the reasons you dropped out of college and did what you did, right? It, it was. It, I had a very fulfilling career. I not just putting people in jail. Uh, m- much of my career was uh interacting with people in a respectful way. You, th- you think that's a, like a, a, a small thing. No. But showing people respect is a big thing. Yeah. Particularly in some neighborhoods. They don't yeah. get treated with respect. No, of course not. Yeah, so that, that's a lot of currency you build with people. That, that was much of what, what I brought to the profession. Your career was not without loss either. Oh, no. I, I, I've had tragedies professionally and personally during my 33 years as a cop. I've, you know, I've run the gamut. I, I've got a sense of understanding for grief and pain like no other. I mean, I just, uh, but, but for my Christian faith, I, I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to hold it together with some of the things, not only that I've seen happen to people, but what's also happened to me. Now you became chief in 2010, yes. right? Yes, in 2010. And you had just been in that job for weeks when you lost your son. Yes. My son was uh, 27 years old, uh, living on his own, and he had been experiencing, I'm finding this out after the fact, experiencing bipolar, schizophrenic, adult-onset behavior, hearing voices. Uh, He and his girlfriend had uh, tried to get help. He didn't like the medication. He told her not to talk to me, not to tell me about it. He was embarrassed about his mental health. Um, I was unaware. Um, he has a psychotic episode. He ex- he's experimenting with uh, marijuana that's laced uh, with uh, hallucinogenic drugs, and he gets a gun and just starts shooting. He's shot and killed by police, uh, and an officer is killed in this horrific shootout in a suburb of Dallas. And I'm in a job just a few weeks. Uh, and it's it, it, not burying a child is bad enough, but the circumstances that that happened. You're the police was chief. Just over the top grief. So he shot and killed one of your officers. Uh, a suburban cop. Right. Then he was killed yes. by an officer. Yes. And he was mentally ill. Yes. I mean, it's a perfect storm. It's Very all much so. everything wrong, everything bad comes yes. right. Right. And, and you, police, it's like, it's like a family. So you grieving twofold. You, you, you're grieving for loss of your child and you're grieving for the loss of a police brother. Fellow officer, yeah. And, and there, there's, people talk about, you know, what, what do you say? There's nothing you can say to, it's, it's a grief and a pain that's dark and deep. It, it really is. And it's, uh, but for my faith in Christ that I'm able to even 
talk about it. And I think it's important for me to talk about it. It's, it, it's therapy for me. I've talked about it on more than one occasion. Yeah. Uh, but the despair and and, and the, the the just the lo- the sense of loss. It, it, it's it's. And I know you talk to a lot of people that's lost people that they love. It's a big hole that never gets filled. It, there, there's time doesn't help. People tell you you know, just give it some time. Time doesn't help. Uh, it, it's it's just the burdens we bear uh, that in this life, and you just have to take a step and then take another. And I got back to work as chief after two weeks off. Out <laughs> to feel and the the criticisms were brutal. Were brutal. Um, what were the criticisms? The cops feel a sense of, you know, your son's a cop killer. That's the worst of the worst thing you could be. Uh, and you know. Politicians do their thing, you know, trying to figure out which way the wind is blowing. Uh, I will say, uh, the, the person that hires, is a city manager form of government in Dallas, and so the city manager hires the police chief, uh, not the mayor or city council members. And city manager Mary Soon never wavered in her support for me during that time. Mm-hmm. She, she, she really was... Uh, more than stand up, you know, can't find the words to say even to this day how much I appreciate how Mary uh, stood by me and helped me continue to lead the department. Well, I know Mary, and she is deep resolve. Yes, very much so. Yeah. You also lost a partner, best friend. We hit it off like the first day in the police academy. Uh, Walter Williams, uh, he was forty-two. When he went through the academy, he had been, he served 20 years in the military. Oh, wow. And he wanted to be a police officer. He's 42 and I'm 22. And I'm thinking at the time, old man, I call him old man the whole time. I, I rib him the whole time. Old man, we run. He, he, he could run as uh, a mile as fast as I could. We were doing six minute miles, five minute, five, 25 miles. And I, this old man, I said, old man, slow down. You'll have a heart attack. I, old man, old man. So we get assigned to the same area of town. So we work partners. Um, and we're five years into the job. And uh, we both uh, take a test to, to, for our first promotion. I make detective and I'm transferred. He makes field trainer. So he becomes a field trainer. And uh, my... One of my last conversations with him before he shot and killed on a domestic violence call is, man, why do you want to train rookies, man? They just going to get you hurt. They do stupid stuff. They make mistakes. I said, come on, apply for the detective. I was going to have a, put a good word in for him. He said, no, no, no. We're, we're here to help other officers learn how to do the job, David. I, I, I'll never forget that last conversation. I said, man, you gonna, you, I said, these rookies, they're going to do, you're you going to have you fighting people and they just do stupid stuff. Rookies make mistakes. He was determined to, to, to give back and teach rookies how to, do the, how to do the job right. And he always wanted to be police chief. I said, okay, well, I'll, be, uh, I'll help you, but I, you know, I said, I can't deal with policy. He said, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to be police chief one day. I said, man, God bless you. I said, I, I just, that's, that's not for me. <laughs> I said, I, said, I, I want to make more money. I want to get promoted right for my family, but I'm just going to go through the ranks and take the test. And when... The last rank you can get by taking a test, that's the last one I want. 
uh, uh, that was kind of our secret. And I'll be a, you know, whatever captain or whatever for you. And I'll make sure we make you look good, brother. I said, but I want no part of dealing with politicians. So. Well, that had to be a terrible loss. Oh, my God. I, you know, I couldn't go to the hospital when he was shot. He, he, he didn't die immediately. And his, his wife at the time told me, could I go home to their home and just sit with their kids? And he had three kids. And uh, I, I was 26 at the time and sat up all night with his son and daughter and young, and young uh, teenager and a young, a young child trying to give them hope that he might pull through. And he, and he passed away that night, and I grew up that day. I, I went from 26 to about 46. And, of course, you did become chief in 2010. And, yeah. and you, obviously, you got white officers, Hispanic officers, right. Right. black officers. Right. 20 reporters needing a story every day. Yeah. <laughs> Always looking for something, right? Every day. And you did a lot of controversial things. I did. But one of the things you were always very outspoken about was reducing police violence. Yes. Which seems a bit of a contradiction because your favorite thing was SWAT. Yes. (laughs) And you came from SWAT. I've got friends on Dallas SWAT, and they have T-shirts that say, you can run, but you'll just die tired. (laughs) I mean, it's like... They get called when things get bad, right? That's right. That's right. And I have a lot of that in me at the same time. It's in contrast to this This is a profession. And people in this city expect us to protect them. But you did things like fighting drug dealers. You would just park a cop <laughs> on the corner where the drug dealers made their living Right. And just park them there yeah. till it just dried up and they went away. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Why doesn't everybody do that? <laughs> it makes the police officer visible. It drives the drug dealers out. And I know they say they're just going to move to Somewhere another else. corner, but then yeah. so can you. Right. Exactly. I, you know, I try to do it some worked. things. Common sense ain't so common in a lot of professions. And ours is no exception. Law enforcement, no exception. So I, I did some very... Uh, kind of common sense things that you would think yeah. uh, most people would try. And, and some people do. I, I don't want uh, right. to put out that I'm smarter than everybody else in the profession. That's not the case at all, actually. I made a lot of mistakes uh, in the profession. Uh, but I, I really tried to engage the community in ways when there wasn't a crisis that, that built some currency when I thought we would need it later and when we did have a, a mistake yeah. or something that happened. I really tried to do things that built relationships. And, and it was in contrast to uh, let's arrest them all and let God sort them out. Because um, that, I have a lot of that in me too. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm thankful that the part of me that really wants to build relationships wins a lot of arguments. You have this multiracial department yes. that you're running as a black police chief. How much did your 11-year-old friend <laughs> have to do with where you wound up being colorblind? Everything. It's amazing. Talk about that. It's amazing. Every time I talk about that, I, I, I'm amazed at, at this story. So 
I'm in the first group of kids in the Dallas Independent School District that are bust during desegregation in 1971. I'm in sixth grade. And I'm going to an all-black elementary school in sixth grade. And uh, Judge Barefoot Sanders orders Dallas Independent School District to desegregate schools. And overnight, the next school year, instead of the, the school I used to walk to, I'm bused on the other side of town to Mark Twain Elementary, an all-white school, uh, just a handful of blacks. And uh, Dr. Phil, I'm not exaggerating. No one spoke to me for three months. <laughs> Seriously? I'm walking in the hallways like I'm invisible. No one spoke to me for three months. And uh, I hate it. I hate going to school. I'm, it's starting to shape my view of whites. I, I, I hadn't grown up around whites, and my school had all black teachers. So this is my experiment, experience for three months, that no one's speaking to me. I raise my hand to answer a question. The teacher never calls on me. Um, none of the white kids speak to me. And one day I'm walking out of the school to get on the bus to go home. Uh, the most popular white kid in school, his name is Mike Schillenberg, uh, says, hey, David, you want to come to my house for dinner? Just out of the blue. Knew my name. First person that spoke to me. I stop. The bus takes off. I turn around. And let me, let me try to describe Mike Schillenberg. Mike Schillenberg is a sixth grade 11-year-old Brad Pitt-looking guy. I mean, he's all the guys look up to him in sixth grade, and all the girls love Mike Schillenberg. Popular, good-looking, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. I mean, just the you know, picture perfect. And I turned, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's going to turn down Brad Pitt for, for dinner? So, you know, I'm, I'm going, you know. And so, me up, huh? <laughs> yeah, 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 let's go, let's go. And we, we walk, and I'm walking with it, and I'm thinking, first thing I'm thinking is, at 11-year-old, Man, white people should eat dinner early because it's like three <laughs> yeah. o'clock, and my mom ain't gonna cook till seven. So that's the first thing is that, that dinner gonna be ready when you get home, Mike. And, and we walk in. His mother calls him to the kitchen. He hadn't told her he was gonna invite me over for dinner, and they're going back and forth, whispering in the kitchen about this. And I, I don't. I'm sitting on the plastic furniture. You know how they wrap the furniture in plastic in the '70s. And I'm thinking, man, I'm about to get uninvited to dinner. I'm sorry. <laughs> Feeling like Sidney Poitier, but I'm trying to walk out the front door. I said, man, I'm not going to be embarrassed and get kicked out of the house. So, but, but before I got to the door, his mom comes out with two pot pies. And we sit down. And, and Dr. Phil, I'm not exaggerating. You would have thought we'd known each other our whole lives. We are like two people. We, we, we talk all evening. We play outside. We lose track of time. It's starting to get dark. I miss my bus. My mom doesn't know anything about this. And so... You know, Mike's mom got to take me home and uh, to the hood <laughs> at dark. She ducking there. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's the fastest driving white woman I ever seen. Yeah, like she drive NASCAR. But we get home and my mom has uh, convened a search party to look for me because she thinks the Klan got me and I'm like in a ditch about to die or something. And, and she turns around and hugs me, kisses me, asks me, uh, where the hell you been? And I point toward Mike's mom's car behind me and she speeds off. And a dust of smoke <laughs> engulfs where the car had been. It's funny as hell. And uh, Mike changed my view of race forever. Forever. Just, just, just with that invitation. Just and y'all remain friends. From we're, we're best friends to this day. Really? To best this friend. day? Yes. What's he Stay do? In touch. He's a banker in Dallas. Really? Yeah. He, he, he went to the University of Texas, like me. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I'll never 
get sucked into f- first being a victim because you're not going to treat me second class. You're just not going to do it. Or, you know, having someone else feel the same way because they weren't raised right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I need to teach you a little bit about brothers. Well, isn't it something how that happened when you're 11 years old and it influences who you are as a police chief in one of the biggest cities in America? Yes, and especially through crisis moments, that, 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 that having that lens yeah. of a, a, a young white person treating me with respect uh, is revealed uh, during crisis moments much more than any other time. Well, I have to ask you about crisis moments. It's 2016, and five officers are killed. Twelve are attacked. Five are killed. Nine are injured. Two civilians, yeah. Plus civilians. And that put the United States of America on the brink of anarchy. Yes, sir. And it put you at the absolute precipice where what you did or did not do in the matter of a few hours and in the matter of a few critical statements determined the direction this country took at that time, you were a pivot point for this country. Take me through those moments. The first parts of July 7th and the five officers being killed were the notifications to me, the phone calls. So the protests downtown was like a day of protests across the country. And so we we had planned uh, with officers assigned downtown. We had the SWAT team nearby in a, in a high crime area near downtown. And uh, f- for all intents and purposes, it was going to be a peaceful protest. There, there was no indication we, we had uh, embedded undercovers in the protest planning meetings. We had relationships with the leaders. None of the leadership had problems with the Dallas Police Department. They were protesting what happened in Louisiana and Minnesota with uh, some unarmed black men being, being, being shot and killed by other law enforcement. So we knew the agenda. They were planning to have speakers. Uh, they hadn't planned to march through downtown. That was a little bit spontaneous, but there was no plans to damage property or for them to be arrested. Uh, they just wanted to, to, to protest, exercise the First Amendment. I'm there, and the protest ends. Uh, they start marching through town. It's when the first time they've done that, my second-in-command calls me and, and when the first shots rang out, an officer's down. Then he calls me again as I'm reporting to the command center, second, then a third. Um, and, and he describes this as low sick. That's similar to grave. That's police terminology for the, 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 the officer who shot is in grave condition. Uh, we, we call it low sick in our profession. So each officer that shot is low sick. Four are shot immediately. The fifth is shot, shot doing another exchange. And so I, I know this pain. I, I talked about it earlier with my partner and with my son. I, this pain is familiar. So I get to that, uh, 
deep, dark uh, moment of despair that uh, four officers are grave, likely to die. Uh, I'm only able to function because this is familiar pain to me uh, and, and not not in the far past. This is familiar pain. Uh, so I'm at a moment where I've been before uh, and I'm able to function. I'm, I'm able to uh, pull it together uh, to do right by the city, by these families and by the profession. And what's revealed during this crisis is who I am. I'm a person that quit school and then complain about crack cocaine. I did something about it. And so some of, one of the first most, I guess, remembered words, people come up to me and say this all the time. Man, where did you get that from? I said, that's who I am. Put down the protest signs. Put in an application and help us solve these problems in your neighborhood. I said that not to, not to demean them or not, not to push protesting as a right to do, but you wanna make a difference? I put an application in. I left college and did something about it. Put your aspirations to change the world into action beyond just making us aware of what the problems are. You know, problem identifiers are a dime a dozen. So th that's a long night, a long two days, a long two weeks of having uh, five funerals, uh, planning five funerals, graveside. We have a great tradition in law enforcement when in a line of duty death, it's, it's, it's gut-wrenching. Not only facing the widows and girlfriends of these officers, they all have young kids, <laughs> and, but old enough to know what happened. Not, not, not toddlers. They all don't know what happened. Um, and it, it seemed that the world was looking. You know, so I had the weight of the world looking, in my opinion, not only at the city of Dallas, but at the police profession. And I just felt this uh, sense of obligation to, to say the right things, uh, to talk about you're asking the profession to do too much. We're not built to solve all of society's failures. Uh, our prisons are the largest mental health providers in this country. They are. That that's that's shameful. Um, and if you and if you think about five officers being killed, it's the most since 9/11 in one event. Yeah. So it's no small thing, particularly in Dallas. We lost a president in the city. Right. So Dallas itself has some history. So myself and Mayor Mike Rollins uh, had to get it right. And, and, and again, during all the interviews and all the things you saw on television, that whole time I'm planning to use C4 to blow this guy up. The whole time I'm planning to do that. And I'm, they're, they're putting the plans together. They're making the suggestions on how it happens. It's, it's the first time in American policing that C4 explosives are being used uh, uh, as a deadly weapon, weaponized the bomb robot. That's never been done. We're making police history in this, but it's risky. It's career ending. 
legally, uh, you could be prosecuted if you don't do this right, uh, because we're not judge and jury. So you have to have the right uh, legal grounds to, to, to do this. And so while I'm on display to the world, I'm planning to do something that's never been done in law enforcement, and it goes off successfully. But you did it. You ended that crisis without another police officer stepping into the line of fire. That's exactly right. That's why you did it. That's the only way I did it. I watched this happening, and I said to Robin, this is happening without another police officer stepping into the line of fire because this man's behind a corner of a building. There's no access to him. And it's a long hallway, Dr. Phil. It's a long hallway, which means you're going to be exposed for a long time. Yeah, there's no way. You can't rush him. Can't rush him. And people talk about shields and stun devices. You, that, that's, a, that's a person bringing that up, never been shot at. Yeah. You never, if, if you, and I've been shot at. You get shot at, you won't even suggest walking down that hallway yeah. for anybody. I said that to her, too. The people were criticizing this. I said, the critics have never been shot at. Right. The critics have never been behind a shield rushing somebody right. with a right. high-powered rifle. Right, But because being behind the shield when bullets are bouncing off of it. Yeah, that looks good in the movies. Only in the movies yeah. because your legs are exposed, your elbows are exposed. Somebody got to flank the shield with a gun and expose half their body. Uh, I've done that. I've done all that. I, I brought that job with me from SWAT. I knew that wasn't a good option to use. Yeah. This this was the only option. I thought it was uh, brilliant. And, 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 I, and I would do it again. I Dr. thought Fair. it was brilliant. I would. Given the same circumstances, I would do it again. Yeah. And it worked. Thank God yes, it sir. worked. Yes, sir. He was neutralized. Nice way of saying killed. Right. But no other officer was put in jeopardy. Right. And we can get another robot. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. But again, it's a tough, thankless job. But a cop came to work tonight regardless of those circumstances, and is willing to risk their life. That's the amazing thing about this country. It is amazing. Do you have a strategy, a philosophy for school shootings? Should there be armed guards at the schools? Should the teachers be armed? What is the solution? How do we combat this? I've been discussing this with a couple of independent school district police chiefs recently. So I got a lot of information about this. It's it's multifaceted solution, more than one solution. Number one, our schools uh, need to have a different structure. And what I mean by that, we, we need to put the money into bulletproof glass for our classrooms, including the doors, uh, and make those safe rooms that you just can't shoot through. Uh, we need to have uh, limited access to our schools. Our schools have 20, 30 doors where you can come off the street and walk in anywhere need to have limited access to our schools. Uh, we need to have a, a system to communicate to the staff when we have an incident. In many of our school shootings, one area of the school didn't even know what was happening compared to the other side of the school. The, the, the old intercom system just is not no. 21st century solution to this complex problem. You know, we had the intercom, so they never would imagine school shootings when that was created. Uh, next is uh, a touchy subject, but I've mentioned it before. Uh, we need to be able, to, through primary care for our young people, identify mental health. 
and have access to quality mental health for our young people. Not that mental health equals school shooting. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying early identification can lead to mitigating it evolving to a violent circumstance. That's what I mean. We know in profiling that with leakage, 80-some percent of these shooters tell somebody what they're going to do and when they're going to do it before right. they do it. Right. And 60-some-odd percent tell two or more people what they're going to do and when they do it before they do it. Right. The Parkland so, shooting is case study yeah. exhibit A. Time and time again, they write manifestos. They tell people, don't go to school today. I'm going to do this. They do right. that. People fear becoming a big brother society. It's not a big brother society if you go to someone in authority. Telling is not tattling. If a kid is told that somebody is going to do an act of violence and they go to someone in authority, someone in responsibility, and report that, they're saving the shooter's life, right. they're saving right. the children's lives at school, right. because right. if the shooter is stopped, then his life is not ruined, right. and then all the people that he's going to shoot's lives are saved as well. That's not a big brother society. It's not. That's actually saying this is a person in pain, this is a sick person that needs help, and I think they're serious. And I think the last step uh, is probably the most difficult for our, for our country right now is we need to give, through our legal system, judges the authority to issue uh, warrants to confiscate guns when those circumstances exist. That you make the case for it, and if the parents own guns, they got to give them up under a judge's order. If, if uh, Uncle Johnny has a gun, uh, we need to know what the family circumstances are and bring that to a judge and be able to confiscate some of these guns in the circumstances where someone has threatened and there's a mental health issue, mental health and access to guns is a bad recipe. And, but let's bring it to the courts. Let's, let's not have uh, this, uh, because we're a country of laws, you know, our, our country is based on law. Let's, let's bring it to the courts. Let's give these judges this authority to issue these protective orders to confiscate guns when these circumstances of these threats from, from young people exist mm -hmm. so that we can stop some of this violence. Not all of it. You, you, some's going to slip through the cracks. But let's make a better effort than we're making now. I'm a strong supporter of our rights, but with our rights come responsibilities. Very much so. If you step up and make terroristic threats, you forfeit certain rights. Yes. I think there has to be due process, but I think it can be speedy and responsible. Right. But you have to act on these things so we can start saving these children. We can do more than hunch our shoulders and pray. Yeah, We can exactly. do much more than that. Exactly. Are body cams helping? Very much so. Video is not a silver bullet to accountability. But video is evidence, not just of mistakes that happen, but also of very brave behavior. I think there's two sides to a video. But again, I go back to this example, you know, because I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. Uh, when Des Bryant makes this catch in the Green Bay playoff game, all the Dallas fans see it from every angle on video. And we say it's a catch. 
All the Green Bay fans and Cowboy haters say, <laughs> not a catch. And NFL video is better than police body cam video. Right. So again, video is evidence, but it doesn't take away the responsibility or accountability for people uh, in authority to hold people accountable. It is not going to make Des Bryant's catch a catch for the Green Bay fans. Yeah, but it is evidence. Very much so. I always say no matter how flat you make a pancake, it's got two sides. <laughs> but sometimes those sides are dramatically different. They are. When you're talking about whether somebody's running towards you or away from you, that can make a big difference. Very much so. Yes. I can tell you, if I was a police officer, I would never go on the job without a body cam. That's right. That's right. Never, ever, ever, because I want to have a video record of what happened. It may That's be right. just evidence, but I'm going to have that evidence. Right. The biggest enemy of good cops are bad cops because they can define us all. They can hijack the profession and define us all. And, and, and the, the body cam video can help ferret out people who don't deserve to wear the badge and gun. You are probably the most articulate and passionate law enforcement advocate I've ever met. Thank you. And you've fired more cops than any police chief in America, I suspect. I fired a lot of police. And that, that doesn't make you friends with the union bosses. No. But again, I saw bad cops as an enemy of, of the profession. They can take you down, no matter what good work you do, if you're not willing to hold people who don't deserve to wear the badge and gun accountable, you are hurting good people, not just in the community, but good people on the job with you. And some people slip through and get through the academy that shouldn't. And some people go through and they have one mindset when they go through, things happen in life. They have losses, they have pain. They change, yeah. and they're a different person That's 10 true. years into the job than came through the academy. That's very true. And so things happen. They're bad apples in the barrel. There are. There are. We can't hide those and gloss over them. we got to acknowledge them, hold them accountable, and move on. But we don't paint the whole profession you don't. with the brush of somebody that makes an idiotic criminal decision. Right. You, you don't just because it's right, but you also don't want to paint the whole profession because you do want to keep these brave cops encouraged to come to work every day. Yeah. A day without a cop in this country is a day you don't want to live here. Yeah. It, it, they are. They do have their finger in the dike of criminality that but for their willingness to sacrifice their lives, criminals wouldn't have a second thought in coming to all our homes and killing us, raping us, you know, human trafficking, our young people, our young women, criminals are ruthless, and, and they need cops to hold them at bay. And so keep these cops encouraged. Don't paint them all with a broad brush. Well, I have one last question, and this is a philosophical belief that I have, and I want you to tell me the <laughs> truth about what you think about this. All right, go ahead. And I've talked you to young. Get, you want to get on the couch and I get in the chair? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I've talked to young people about this on my show that have been in conflict with police officers in the field. And mm. I have said to them that it is my philosophy that we absolutely must have the position that you respect the badge in the field. If you think he's wrong, 
If you think she's wrong and she's wearing the badge, you do what he or she says. If you don't respect the authority of the badge in the field, then we've got chaos. If you have an issue, take it up with the court. Right. Don't take it up with the officer in the field. If the officer says, turn around and spread them, I'm taking you to jail, and you think that's unfair and it's unjust, take it up with the court. File a complaint against the officer. Hold them accountable. Get them fired. Sue the department. Do whatever you want. But you have to respect that officer's authority in the field because if you don't, we have chaos. You're exactly right. Not only that, that, that should be enough. That's, a, that's the right explanation. Black parents have this explanation to their kids because they're worried about them getting shot and killed. So this is the talk that black parents have, the talk. Do what, keep your hands on the steering wheel. Say yes, sir, no, sir. Don't litigate your case on the side of a road with a police officer. That, that is not a courtroom. I just want you to come home. Don't ever fight the police. The police have to win every fight. Every fight. Because if, if an officer loses a fight, they lose their gun. If they lose their gun, they lose their life. So when you throw a punch at an officer, the officer is thinking, you're about to take my gun if you win, if you win this fight. So that, an officer is fighting for their life in every fight. You may just be fighting to get away or fighting because your manhood got bruised. That cop is fighting as if you're going to take his gun if he, lo- if he loses the fight. Right. So it is a deadly force fight. So don't let it escalate to that. Just And then sue the, sue the department, you know, file a complaint, uh, build your case, you know, exercise your First Amendment right if you want to protest at police headquarters every day until the complaint is heard. But don't get to the point where you're arguing with that cop on the side of the road. It escalates to a punch being thrown. And now you're in a deadly force confrontation with a cop. Uh, and it would be chaos if we all uh, got to the point where we were on the side of the road with cops litigating our case. It would be chaos in this country. We're a nation of laws. I understand why black parents say that loud and say it long to their children. But I've said it to mine as well. I want you to come home. Argue your case before the judge. Yes. Don't argue your case with the officer. Yes. Because, frankly, they're not equipped to deal with it anyway. Nope. They got the badge. They're going to win this round. They may lose the next one badly, yep. Yep. but they're going to win this one. Yep. Give them this one. Right. And the way to get cops that don't respect you or that violate uh, the, the, the law, the best way to get them is to file complaints because... If they're a bad cop, they have other complaints. Yeah. And it gives the police chief ammunition to fire him. So by by litigating it and getting into a fight or whatever it happens on the side of the road, you're you're actually defeating the way to get the cop out of the profession. You're, you're giving the cop the opportunity to say you you resisted arrest. Don't don't play into a bad cop's hand by allowing him to say you resisted arrest. Well, Chief. July 6th of 2016, you were a Dallas police chief. July 7th, 2016, you became America's police chief. Thank and you so uh, much. we appreciate you and 
We always will. That was a turning point in our country, and you stepped up, and we appreciate you. Thank you so much, Dr. Field. If you would like to watch the video of this entire interview, please go to Dr. Field's YouTube channel and subscribe. It's free, and you will find this interview and a whole lot more.